Hello, I'm Pastor Marshall Oaks, and I'm the lead pastor at Red Hills Church in Tallahassee, Florida. And you're about to listen to a message from our Sunday morning gathering. If you enjoy what you hear, please leave us some feedback on iTunes. And if you really like what God is doing at our church, consider supporting the ministry work at redhillschurch.com give. Thanks, and now for some Bible teaching. All right, so we're kicking off Isaiah today. I'm very excited about it. Um, last week, I really appreciate Lyle stepping in at the last minute. He only had like four days to prepare for that message, and I think he really did a great job, knocked it out of the park, setting up the history of Israel so that we're all kind of on the same um, playing field when it comes to approaching the book of Isaiah. So if you missed that, I encourage you to go back and listen to it. It was filled with rich history as far as Israel is concerned. In that message, he zeroed in on a specific point in history in the life of Israel where uh, the kingdom divided in half. And that's where I'd like to start today. So I don't wanna rehash all he talked about, about uh, you know, Moses and Joshua and the kings and all that. We're gonna pick up right around 950, 1000 BC, and we're looking at where the kingdom split. So um, I put together some slides to help you understand and wrap your head around the time frame and the significance of what we're talking about. So please humor me as we go through this. Um, it's, it's a little more, it might be a little more academic than you're used to when you show up on a Sunday morning, but hey, this is Red Hills. Um, so let's get into it. Uh, Anderson, if you'll put the first slide up. This is, um, what we're looking at is essentially a timeline of significant events that are happening in and around the period that we're going to study. So we're gonna start today um, uh, with, if, if you look at the top, the dotted line, and I, I understand some of you in the back, you're like, I can't see that. Like, I'm standing here and I can barely see it. I sympathize with you. So I'll post this on Slack afterwards. So do your very best. <laughs> Preston's like, I don't know what that, is that a line? You're saying it's a dotted line. I'm just gonna trust you. The dotted lines across the top represent the nation of Israel. The solid line at the bottom is a timeline. So you have King David, we're familiar with him. He had a son named Solomon. Solomon built this massive, beautiful temple. Well, Solomon had this son whose name was Rehoboam. Rehoboam, when he took charge, we're told that a couple people within the nation came to him and said, look, we're interested in what kind of leadership you're gonna have. Rehoboam, are you gonna be the kind of king like your dad, Solomon, who was a little heavy-handed and liked building things with slave labor? And Rehoboam went back to his counselors and asked, how should I respond? And essentially, he came to the people who came and asked the questions, the, the leaders of Israel, and said, look, guys, here's the deal. If you thought my dad was gonna be tough, you ain't seen nothing yet. And he makes a decision to be an even heavy, more heavy-handed king than Solomon was, and he starts leveling the oppression almost from day one when he becomes a king. Well, this starts a revolt within the nation of Israel. They were all one nation at the time. And people are like, well, I don't like that. And Rehoboam's like, deal with it. I don't care if you don't like it. This is the way it's gonna be. Well, after that, things started kind of creating turmoil, and this guy named Jeroboam, no relation, 
stood up and said, I'll tell you what, how about I crown myself king and I'll take half the northern tribes with me and just leave you with Judah and like Benjamin, just, just a couple of the tribes afterwards. I'll take 10 tribes, we'll go north and we'll just split this kingdom. And Rehoboam's are like, well, whatever, man. And Jeroboam's like, yeah, whatever. And at this point, <laughs> trying to make it relevant for the kids. At, nine, at the year 930 BC, <clears throat> Israel splits in two. They're no longer a united nation. It was like the Civil War happened and it's just like there is now no longer United States of America. There's the North and the South. It's exactly what happened in Israel. So at 930 BC, Rehoboam becomes the king of southern Judah and Jeroboam becomes the king of northern Israel. That's what happened in 930 BC. Now we're gonna fast forward about 150-ish years and we've got new kings and we've got a new enemy on the horizon because the enemy loves taking advantage of division and now Israel is divided. They don't have a unified army. They don't have a unified king. All their resources are split. Anderson, go to the next slide. <clears throat> so this color bar that you probably barely can see, represents a chunk of time when Assyria was the reigning enemy in this region. So you fast forward to about 700s, 800s-ish, you've got Assyria rising up. The northern kingdom, they start, they've got all kinds of new kings, northern kingdom's got kings, southern kingdom's got kings. Each kingdom has their own prophets speaking. And Assyria starts taking advantage of the fact that the northern kingdom have given themselves over to idols. And God keeps warning them, you keep doing this. Because what happened was Jerusalem, the center of worship, the temple, stayed in the south. Now you all these people of the north, they're like, where are we gonna go worship? So they start setting up places of worship in the high places up in the mountains. Two big cities, one of them was uh, this city called Dan, and it was filled with just idolatrous worship. Well, God says, look, I've had enough of this. If you don't change your ways, I'm gonna let your enemy come in and overtake you. They didn't change their ways, and spoiler alert, the enemy overtook them. In 722 BC, the Assyrians came into the northern kingdom, ransacked it, took them as slaves, pulled them away, and we don't really hear from them anymore. Those tribes, are gone, man. So, during this period, now Judah has to decide what they're gonna do about Assyria. And what Judah decides under the kings under Judah is they decide to start making um, uh, treaties with them. Okay, uh, uh, king of Assyria, please don't come in and conquer us. How about we make a peace treaty with you? Do you see the issue? Judah, rather than running to God, runs to the enemy to make a peace treaty so that things are not as hard as they used to be. So rather than relying on God, they're relying on the enemy for some sense of false peace. Well, this appeases Assyria for a little while until another bad boy in the neighborhood shows up. Anderson, if you go to the next slide, this nation called Babylon rises up and Babylon conquers Assyria. Well, the issues of Judah didn't go away. They kept trying to make treaties, but guess what? Babylon doesn't want to play with treaties. They want all of the pizza. They don't want two slices. They don't want three slices every two months. They want the whole pie, the whole enchilada. They want everything. Judah refuses to turn back to God. They continue in their ways and eventually, guess what happens? God says the same thing. I did it to the northern kingdom and I'm gonna do it to you. You refuse to repent, 
You won't turn from your ways, so I'm gonna hand you over to the enemy. So in 586, Babylon comes into town and they ransack the southern kingdom and they burn Solomon's temple to the ground. It's gone. And they take everybody in Judah and they enslave them and haul them back to Babylon for what's referred to as the exile. Exile lasts for about 70 years. That's what Daniel was living through, the whole Daniel in the lion's den, the whole Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. All that takes place right there during the reign of Babylon. Well, after Babylon, guess what? A new bad boy's in town. This nation called Persia rises to the surface. And, Anderson, if you go to the next slide. <clears throat> I should probably look this way. So it's Medo-Persian because uh, the Medes and the Persian, Persians, they kind of shared their kingdom. They were a joint kingdom together. That's why in Daniel, you've got this king named Darius the Mede, but also you've got like Cyrus of Persia. They were kind of sharing power so that they could have a much larger kingdom, but we just refer to them as the Persians. The Persians came in and conquered Babylon and took all of their slaves and kept the exile going until in 538 BC, this guy named Cyrus rises up and says, you know what? I'm going to rule a little bit different. You Hebrews are still my slaves, but I'm going to allow you to go home and rebuild. So you're still under our kingdom, but you're not slaves to us. So in 538, he gives a ton of money to a group of Hebrews to go back to Judah and rebuild Israel and rebuild the temple. The temple eventually gets finished in 516 B.C., Now, why am I showing you all of this information? I'm showing you this because I want you to have a broad understanding of what the timeline looked like during this period, so now I can zoom in and show you what Isaiah was doing. So if you go to the next slide, this big white line, it's a black box, but you can't see it's a black box, just trust me. This big white line circles around Assyria. This is the time period that Isaiah prophesied. This is the period which he lived and spoke. He ministered for about 60 years from the period of 736 to 687. He primarily um, served the southern kingdom and southern kings. So he wasn't really serving northern kings, he lived in the south, but he did speak to northern kings. He did speak to the nation of Israel. Troy, if you can, will you cut that AC? Good luck, the AC in here is wacky. If you, he'll hit off and then like an hour from now it'll turn off. Isaiah prophesied from 6, 736 to 687, so he was alive before Assyria conquered the north. That's wild. So he knows, he, God is telling him, this is coming, this is coming, no one's listening, this is coming, and all of a sudden, now the northern kingdom's gone. And now the southern kingdom's like, whoa, what Isaiah said is true, what do we do now? So he continues during that entire period. So Isaiah prophesied, go to the next slide, Anderson. Isaiah prophesied during the specific kings of Judah, Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. Why are we doing this? Why are we going so deep into history? Because these are the names you're gonna see in the book of Isaiah. These are the kings who were alive and ruling while Isaiah was alive and prophesying. But we're not just focusing on the kings of the south. If you go to the next slide, Anderson. These are the names of the kings of Assyria. Now, if you're about to have a baby, (laughs) take notes, right? Because we got some quality names here. 
that I guarantee you when you send your kid to daycare, you're not gonna have two Tiglath Pleasers in the classroom. <laughs> Assyria, we're gonna see the name Tiglath Pleaser pop up. We're gonna see Shalmaneser. We're gonna see Sargon. We're gonna see Sennacherib. These are the leaders, the kings, the military force leaders of Assyria. They were around while Isaiah was prophesying. These are the guys in the south that were kings in Judah. Now, why is all this so important? It's because the book of Isaiah, I'm gonna get over here real close. The book of Isaiah covers everything from this white line to this white line, absolutely 100%, but it doesn't stop there. Isaiah actually prophesies that Babylon's gonna come in and destroy Judah. He prophesies that the exile is coming he even prophesies that a king named Cyrus is going to release the Hebrew people back to Israel to rebuild. Isaiah prophesies things that happen 150 years in the future, but it doesn't stop there because he also talks about a suffering servant. He prophesies about a coming king, Jesus, 700 years before it happens. And the end of Isaiah talks about a new kingdom, a new heaven and a new earth where God will rule in human form among his people and that hasn't happened yet. Why is Isaiah so beautiful? because the dude prophesied specific things that were happening at his time, but he's also looking forward 150, 700, 23,000 years in the future. God is showing him specific things that are happening that actually some of them haven't even happened yet. Now here's what's wild about this. Whenever you get a bunch of smart people in a room and they start examining texts, and they, they don't have a passion for God, and they don't believe in things like prophecy, and they start seeing things like this. They have to reconcile it in a way that makes sense. So when a lot of smart, and you'll, listen, if you go pick up a random commentary on Isaiah, you, it's a mixed bag. You may get one commentary that, that thinks, yeah, okay, this is one book written by one guy who prophesied all this stuff. There's those commentaries out there, but you may pick up a commentary written by these, pardon me, some of you may fall into this camp, so I wanna be uh, cautious, um, eggheads who are convinced that the, the prophecy, there's no way that Isaiah could have gotten Cyrus's name, no way. So what probably happened was Isaiah wrote chapters one to 39, and then 40 through 66 was probably written by somebody who lived through the exile and then came back afterwards and wrote that stuff afterwards. So Isaiah isn't written by one guy, it's not one Isaiah, it's actually three Isaiahs crammed into one book. I gotta be honest with you guys, I don't buy it. One of the reasons that they cite for this being written by multiple authors, and I'm saying this because you'll hear it, I just want you to be loaded, cocked, and loaded for bear when somebody says it, you can tell, uh, well, but actually, that's wrong. Because <clears throat> Marshall said so. Two big things that they cite. The first one, there's no way that he could have covered all that his history, right? And then two, hey, there it is. And then two, 
The writing style is different. The writing style at the end of the book is very different than the writing style at the first. To those critiques, I'll offer these two responses. One, the detail of prophecy comes from God himself. God knows what's gonna happen. He told Isaiah and Isaiah told us. You don't need multiple authors for that. And two, the guy wrote and prophesied for over 60 years. If you go back and you listen to one of my sermons that I preached from 10 years ago, I promise it doesn't sound anything like it does today. If you were to happen to go back to college and find one of the papers that I wrote 20 years ago, I guarantee you it won't sound like one of the papers that I write today. So the idea that the authorship sounds different, I don't buy it because all of us grow in our knowledge over time and our styles change a little bit. And what you say and what's important when you're 70 is not the stuff that you talk about that you think is important when you're 25. Is there anybody say amen to that? All right. So if anybody tries to come and tell you, oh, Isaiah was written by, you say, oh, I love you, brother. You can be wrong. One final thought before we get into Isaiah chapter one. That's all we're gonna read today, just the first chapter. Isaiah is a book primarily of prophecy. And there's something about prophecy you need to understand. Prophecy is both forthtelling and foretelling. And what do I mean by that? Forthtelling means I'm speaking forth something that God has brought to my mind that applies to right here and right now. Isaiah's prophecies absolutely apply to Assyria, to King Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, Sargon, Sennacherib. They are forthtelling in nature in the sense that if you don't repent, this is gonna take place. But there's another component of prophecy and it is the foretelling component and that is essentially the idea of saying things that are going to happen before they happen. It is the future sense, the future telling. And Isaiah, I bring this up because prophecy in, in nature, uh, it can be confusing to people because a lot of people think that prophecy is only telling the future, but that's not true. It is the projecting of telling the future, but also the application of today. So the prophet is actually talking about things that are happening in 700 BC, but he's also speaking about things that are taking place over the entire geopolitical scope of the entire world over all history. Now that's important for us to understand because God is not just redeeming a nation, Israel. As ones who are living in 2021, on the other side of the cross, we understand that God's plan with Israel was to bring about a king who was worthy to rule the world and his name is Jesus. So the plan was never just to save Israel. The plan was to have these people produce this king, Jesus, who would then rise up and call the whole world to repentance and rule over Israel, his people, and also rule over the church, but make them one so that now in Christ there's no more Jew and Gentile and male and female. There's just disciples. There's just redeemed people of the Lord. There's just citizens of God's kingdom. So with that in mind, we have to understand that as we're reading in this, we're gonna zoom real deep in on a scripture. We're gonna look at the forthtelling aspect of what he's saying to Judah at this period of time. Then we're gonna zoom way out 
And we're gonna look at how this applies to us as a whole, as a church throughout history. And then we're gonna zoom way back in again. And this zooming in and zooming out is gonna happen over like two or three verses. It's gonna happen within the same book, uh, the same chapter, it may happen within a verse or two. And the point of this is Isaiah is trying to get the people of God, including us, to understand that these events that took place in 722 have to do with these specific people, but also that's just a shadow of the greater things that have to do with all the people because in the same way that Israel, God's people, refused to trust him and were given over to their enemy as a way to purify them, we now in 2021 as the people of God who refuse to submit to his leadership will also often be given over to the things that we want so bad and we won't listen to him telling are bad for us but we want them so bad. We will often give them over to us for the purpose of purification because he's gonna have a spotless bride when he returns, he just is. And if you're not okay with that, then I would venture to say you're not okay with a lot of things in God's kingdom and you should start rethinking this whole thing called Christianity because this is the way it works. This is about his ways, not your ways. This is about turning from your thoughts, turning from your desires, forsaking your identity and inheriting something infinitely greater. That's what this is about. And as we study Isaiah, we're gonna understand how this deep, rich history of this nation is expanded on a worldwide scale because God's work is worldwide and it includes all history. So it includes Israel in the 700s, but it is not confined to there. Are we all on the same page? I hope so, let's get to it. Let's go to Isaiah chapter one, verse one. All right, the vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, the kings of Judah. So right there, Isaiah tells us when he spoke and what God showed him. So when we, as we continue through this verse two, before we read it, I want you to listen to this prophecy we're about to le- listen to with one ear tuned to Judah in 736, and the other ear turned to all of God's people, starting at the first century church all the way up to the modern church, okay? So listen to this prophecy in the context of Judah and also in the context of where we live today. Isaiah 1, 2. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Man, that's a good bumper sticker, right? Someone should put that on their car. Children that I have reared and brought up, they have rebelled against me. See, the ox knows its owner and the donkey knows its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. That's interesting. What is the first accusation? That they don't know who they are. That the donkey knows and the ox knows, 
but my own people don't know, they don't understand. Verse four, ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They've despised the Holy One of Israel. They have utterly estranged. Why will you still be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick. The whole heart is faint from the sole of the foot, even to the head. There's no soundness in it. There's nothing but bruises and sores and raw wounds. They're not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. Your country lies desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. And in your very presence, foreigners devour your land. It is desolate as overthrown by foreigners. And the daughter of Zion is left like a booth in a vineyard, like a lodge in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. Let's pause there. So this chapter begins like the setting of a courtroom. And this is, this is common in the Old Testament. You see this a lot in the book of Psalms. It's almost like um, God is calling the heavens and the earth as uh, witnesses in a trial. All of the heavenly realms, the things you can't see, the angels, the demons, everything you can't see, this all unknown realm is watching every word, every action that you have. All of creation, your dog is watching what you're doing in your house. All creation is beholding our sin. God is coming before and saying, I'm, I'm calling courtroom into session, and I'm calling these witnesses, heaven and earth, to testify against, look, you've got no leg to stand on. Everybody sees what you've been doing when you think nobody sees what you're doing. But who's he calling in to this courtroom? He's bringing his own children, and this is very important for us to understand what he's talking about. God is not speaking to non-believers. He's talking to his family, Israel, his church, his people. He's talking to the people of God. Now, what are the charges that God is bringing against his children? Let's go through them. First, they don't know or understand who they are. They're going through an identity crisis. Man, if we just had, uh, this is so foreign to us, we don't understand what this is like. <laughs> Man, if we just only just had a time in history where we could understand this better. They're going through an identity crisis. They can't figure out who they are. Their identity that God gave them is not enough. And so what they do is they start going out into the world and they start begging the world, please give me an identity. And the world says, sure, we'll give you an identity. How about we give you an identity wrapped in your sexuality? How about we give you an identity wrapped in the color of your skin or how much money you have in your account? How about we give you an identity based on the fact that you're a man or a woman or where you went to college or the family that you grew up in? How about we give you an identity based off that addiction you've had your entire life? We'll give you an identity, that's no problem. We've got identities to spare. 
And what it does is it creates inside of the people of God turmoil and tension because we've already been told who we are, but it's not enough. And so what we do is we start going out to the world and we start asking them for an identity and we find a home in anti-God worldviews. These things that are contrary to God's word, we find some peace in them because they are accepting to us as long as we talk like them and act like them and look like them. The moment we don't, man, we're tossed out. But that's one of the first issues they struggle with, an identity crisis. They don't know and they don't understand who they are. The second is a lack of knowledge since they don't know and they don't understand. This lack of knowledge leads to sinful actions because you always follow what you believe. Actions follow knowledge. What you think, what you believe, produces fruit, produces actions. And their lack of knowledge produced sinful actions, and it didn't stop there because these sinful actions started carrying over into their families, and they started teaching their kids the same things. So in these homes, this is what they have. They've got lack of boundaries. Kids are running the home. Kids are telling their parents what is right and what is wrong. Because the parents have completely checked out. The parents are too busy chasing their identity or chasing work and giving themselves to this world for some good reasons, for some bad reasons, but they've completely checked out on their family and so the kids are feeling this sense of empowerment uh, because of the culture around them telling them you can do anything, be anything. So the parents have checked out, the kids are only hearing um, uh, the stuff that the world wants them to hear them and maybe once a week when they gather together at the temple, they hear about God, but that's the only time they hear about the Lord. They're not hearing about the Lord around the dinner table because there isn't a dinner table. There's only drive-through to get from the next thing to the next thing to the next thing. There's no cultivating, there's no parents praying with their kids before they go to bed. There's no parents talking with their kids about what the word of God says about life and why we have these boundaries because of what he set up. And a lot of it is rooted in the fact that so much history has passed since Moses that a lot of these parents, they don't know They can't teach because they don't know. And if they wanted to start, they don't know where to start. And so you've got dads who feel like, I should be doing more, but I don't know where to start because I don't even know if if Moses lived before Noah. I I I don't even know who wrote the book of 1 Timothy. Was it Timothy? I don't know. And so you feel this conviction I should be doing it, but I don't know where to start. I've never prayed with my family and I don't know how to start. I don't know how to sit down with my kids and tell them, look, dad's been, dad's been, I've been a screw up when it comes to the spiritual responsibility of this family. I don't, I don't talk about the Lord enough. I don't pray with you guys. Uh, and so I repent. And from this point forward, I'm gonna do things differently and, to, and we're gonna read together. And then, and then dealing with the, oh, who do we have to? It's been so nice not doing all that stuff. This is where they're at. And so what happens is foreign gods and foreign idols are talked about more than Yahweh. 
this lifestyle of forsaking the Lord that's bleeding down into the children has made the entire body sick, both individual in the family and the corporate gathering. Nobody is treating these wounds and cities are burning from the inside out. And cities is not just locations you go to where people live. Cities is right here, the heart. This, the heart of the family, the heart of the child, the father, the mother, it's burning from the inside. And the daughters of Zion, the beautiful children of God, the people who redeemed out of slavery and called children of God, they're not beautiful children. They look more like a shack in a cucumber field. Now most of you have never seen a cucumber field. So the best illustration I can think of is, you know, if you go to Home Depot, you pull into the parking lot, off in the back corner of the parking lot is a bunch of sheds for sale. The children of God at this point no longer look like a beautiful crafted temple filled with the presence of God. They look like a shed in a Home Depot parking lot. That's how bad things have gotten. Now, can you start to feel the power of Isaiah's words about how they're not just applicable prophetically for 2,700 years ago, but also for today? Let's continue, verse nine. If the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, we should have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. He's calling Israel Sodom and Gomorrah. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. That's wild because this is what he told them to do. I command you to offer these sacrifices. And now he's saying, I don't delight in it. I don't even like it. As a matter of fact, verse 12, when you come to appear before me, who is required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I can't endure it. Iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, here's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna hide my eyes from you. So when you lift your hands in worship, guess what I'm gonna do? I'm gonna close my eyes. And even though you make many prayers, I'm not gonna listen. You know why? Because your hands are full of blood. So here's what you do, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes, cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless and plead the widow's cause. Let's pause right there. Isaiah through the word of the Lord brings another accusation to the people. Their hands are filled with blood. Their hands are filled with blood even in the midst of continuous religious activities. 
They have not stopped gathering. They have not stopped playing church. They are doubling down on church and church attendance and church activities and religious ceremonies. The problem here is not a lack of worship. The problem is a lack of justice. The problem is that worship stops when the people leave the building. It doesn't carry with them all week long. Now, justice and righteousness in the Old Testament are tied together. Often the words are um, sewn together. They have very similar words. They're they're, um, often mentioned together. And I feel like it would be important for us to define those two words before we move forward because if you don't define biblical justice, the world will gladly define justice for you. So let's go through this. Biblical righteousness. It is adherence to what is required according to a standard. That is righteousness. Adherence to a excuse me, adherence to what is required according to a standard. So God sets a standard, and if you follow that standard, you are righteous. So God says, this is the standard, follow it, and you are righteous. Now let's get into justice briefly. Justice is the determination of rights and assignment of rewards and punishments. So righteousness is, this is the standard, follow it. Justice is, if you have followed the standard, these are your rewards. And if you break the standard, these are your punishments. You follow? Now if you continue you understand biblically that justice doesn't stop with just the rewards and the punishments of following the standard. There's another biblical component to justice that is super important for us to understand, and this is it. Justice is being free from favoritism, self-interest, bias, or deception. So the practical application of justice is the rewards and punishments of following the standard. But the the other component of living out justice is living in such a way where you are free from bias, favoritism, self-interest, and deception. So essentially, the rewards and punishments that you get from the standard are not in any way influenced by your personal bias or your self-preservation. You follow? That's justice. You get rewards and punishments if you follow the standard and those rewards and punishments are not swayed by what I think about you. They're not swayed by my personal self-interest or bias. And Israel's biggest problem, according to Isaiah, is this, that all throughout history, no man has been able to live up to the standard of the Lord. Nobody is righteous in God's eyes. We all attain righteousness the same way, people in the Old Testament and people in the New Testament. We take on the righteousness of Christ through faith. Our faith, our belief in him, is credited to us as righteousness. 
We are righteous not because we follow the standard. We are righteous because he followed the standard and I put my faith in him. You got it? People in the Old Testament were looking forward to this moment. This is why Jesus said, Moses looked forward and he saw my time and he marveled, he wondered, he worshiped, he celebrated. This idea that everyone in the Old Testament who we would consider people of God saved, they were looking forward to this moment and all of us after this moment are looking back towards it. But all of it hinges on this thing. So the people of God, Israel, They were receiving unbiased rewards and punishments based off of their faith that they could be covered under righteousness, but here's the issue. They were unwilling to give unbiased rewards and punishments to each other. So they were saying, God, I joyfully accept the rewards that come my way when I put my faith in you. And I don't have to experience the punishment of destruction because I put my faith in you. But when it comes to dealing with my servants and my friends, the rewards and punishments that I'm gonna give them, they're absolutely based off of my personal preference and my bias. Now, you've got somebody who's in the culture of Israel who is seen by everyone as having high social status. In Israel, high social status people, they got big rewards and little punishments. But if you had a low social status in Israel, your rewards, if you ever got them, were very little. And if you crossed the line, your punishments were huge. And God says, This is why you have blood on your hands. Because I want you caring for the fatherless, the widows, the orphans. I want you to care for the foreigners, the ones far away. But you're looking at them through your own bias and you're punishing them unfairly when that's not what I did to, to you. You're rewarding the wealthy and those with influence because you know that they're gonna let you borrow their summer home when you wanna take a vacation. That's not how I treated you. This is important for us to understand because Isaiah dealt with it, Jesus dealt with it, and we deal with it. Just for a moment, I wanna read you a section of scripture from James 2, one through four. I'm not gonna put it on the screen because I just want you to listen to it. James 2, one through four says, my brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in and you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and you say, sit here in a good place while you say to the poor man, you sit over there or sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? In the time of Isaiah and in the time of our church, partiality perverts justice and it has no place in the life of a believer. You gotta empty yourself of the desire to wanna take care of yourself when you're dealing with other people. Why? Because the Lord promises that he will take care of you. You don't have to watch your back in relationships anymore. Now, am I promising that people are not gonna um, deal underhandedly with you or take advantage? No, that's actually a guaranteed when you start following Christ. 
They abused him, they're gonna abuse us. But that doesn't mean that you get to arrange your life in a way where it's in this tiny little box where no one gets to come in and see the real you because you're protecting yourself. You're not protecting yourself, you're harming yourself. You're robbing yourself of being connected into the family of God, enjoying that, and also experiencing what it's like for the Lord to bring his reconciliation. We want revenge. We want to protect ourselves. And the Lord is like, look, you got to empty yourself of that. I'm the one who deals in revenge. I'm the one who deals in judgment. And I am the one who will protect you. So stop worrying about so much about what people are thinking or saying or talking about behind your back and let me do what I do best. Now let's go to verse 18. It says, come now. Let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, Jesus, they shall be as white as snow. And though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you're willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you will be eaten by the sword for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So God declares good news. He says, even though you're rebellious, stubborn, unclean, bloody-handed, I still want you. And I'll still take you. And I'll still clean you. Verse 21, how's he gonna do it? How's he gonna redeem these people? Verse 21, how the faithful city has become a whore. Whoops, that's harsh language. But Israel has prostituted herself out to every other false ideology, worldview, and idol. There's no better word. The faithful city, the one who is supposed to be a city on a hill, has given herself to any ideology in the world. She who was full of justice, righteousness, lodged in her. Now you're nothing but a bunch of murderers. Your silver has become dross, and your best wine, it's been mixed with water. Your princes, rebels, and companions of thieves, everybody loves a bribe and runs after gifts. They don't bring justice to the fatherless and widow's cause. It does not even come to them. Therefore, the Lord declares, the Lord of hosts, the mighty one of Israel, ah, I will get relief from my enemies and I will avenge myself on my foes. I will turn my hand against you and I will smelt away your dross as with lye and remove all your alloy. And I will destroy your judges at the first, as at the first, excuse me, I will restore your judges as at the first and your counselors as at the beginning. And afterward, when I'm done with you, after I'm done melting away that dross, you will be called the city of righteousness and the faithful city and Zion shall be redeemed by justice and those in her who repent by righteousness. So how is God gonna redeem his people? He's gonna redeem his people by refining them with tribulation. He's not gonna forsake them, even though he probably should have. He should have forsaken and not given us the time of day because we were not worth it. 
But he didn't give up and he's not giving up and he chooses instead, instead of forsaking his people, to purify his people. Now purification looks like, in this situation, giving them over to their enemy. And I think the best way to describe it would be um, almost like a dad who catches his son, his like eight-year-old son in, in the room smoking. He's like, oh, you wanna smoke? We'll fix this. He buys like 10 cartons of cigarettes and he makes the kids sit there and smoke every single, that's not politically correct, I'm sorry, we can't say that in 2021. But you know what I'm talking about. Those of you who are like over 50, you're like, yeah, I remember those days. You want this? Because I don't think you know what you're getting when you say you want this. So I'm gonna give you over to this so that you fully understand what having a slave master is like, because you want this thing, you want this sin, but you don't understand that it's gonna own you. You want this to be your identity? Well, it's going to be, and it's gonna crush you. There's only one identity that is free, and there's only one identity that says, I'm gonna set you free, and you're gonna be mine, you're gonna be beautiful. There's only one option. Everything else is more slavery. Now, when we fast forward and apply this prophecy into modern day, it's important for us to understand that purification isn't always being handed over to the enemy. Some of you in here need to be purified. You need to be cleansed, but that doesn't mean that you're gonna be handed over to the enemy. But it doesn't mean that you won't be. 1 Corinthians 5, 5, there's a situation in the church where Paul tells the church, hand this guy who's indulging himself in sin over to the enemy so that Satan can have his way and buffet his body and possibly maybe save his soul. It's the best thing you could do is to let this guy go. But that's the extreme end of the spectrum. It doesn't always mean being handed over to the enemy, but it does always mean trials and tribulations. James 1, 2 through 4, 1 Peter 1, 6, Romans 5, 3. Trials and tribulations and suffering are part of our purification process to make us clean and pure, to get all that garbage so that we're not wine mixed down with water or silver filled with dross. Even the redemption of Christ came through suffering. Let's go to verse 28. We're going to finish here. <clears throat> verse 28, but rebels and sinners shall be broken together, and those who forsake the Lord shall be consumed. For thus shall be ashamed of the oaks that you desired, those big, tall, huge, glorious oak trees that you wanted planted in your front yard just to show off to your neighbor you're gonna be ashamed of those things. And that beautiful garden you planted in the backyard that you spent so much time doing, giving yourself to, in this situation, these were fertility gardens. These were gardens that were cultivated in order to satisfy fertility gods. You, you don't have to worry if you have a garden and you spend a lot of time in it, that's fine. But those gardens that you give yourself to, they're gonna make you blush when the Lord does what he does. For you shall be like an oak whose leaf withers in a garden who doesn't get any water and the strong shall become tender and his work a spark and both of them shall burn together with none to quench them. So Isaiah is telling the people that the Lord said that redemption is offered to everybody but not everyone is going to accept it. Everyone can accept it but not everyone will. Rebels and sinners who refuse to repent will be broken and their legacy will end 
And a day is coming when anything that was built up against the Lord will be destroyed. And I don't know that we could have a more sobering reminder for us today. Are the things that you're spending your time building going to last when the Lord returns? Because if you're not building his kingdom, he told us he's gonna burn it to the ground. Your little thing, your little sandcastle that you're so proud of, it's gotta go. Your business, if it's not done as worship is unto him, I, I got bad news for you. That's the thing he will use to bring you to your knees. The thing that you cherish, the thing that you built, the thing you put so much affection and attention into, it will not stand against a jealous God. He will bring it to the ground. So let's do this. We're gonna summarize Isaiah one. We're gonna go through the book and look at what is mentioned most. I don't know if you noticed or not, but the word you and your is mentioned 39 times in this chapter. Now we should read the you and the your as Judah, but not just Judah. We should read the you as you. So the last thought that we roll around with today is this, is the Holy Spirit speaking to you today. Do you emphasize religious habits over justice or do you live with bias and favoritism? If you do, today's a great day to let it go. Do you love a bribe? Do you chase gifts? Do you neglect training of your family in God's ways? If so, today's a great day to repent and turn. Do Excuse me, does your life look like watered down wine, impure silver? Would the Lord describe your life as a city on fire? If so, I have great news. The Lord will turn your sins like scarlet, as white as snow. You don't have to keep living the way that you've been living. You don't have to live under the condemnation that you walked in here with. You can live a free man and a free woman. And today is a perfect day to hear God's word. Turn from your sin, let him bind up your wounds, pour oil on them, and start eating the good of the land and rest in God. Amen? How do you do that? Turn from your ways and fix your eyes on Jesus. Let's pray. Hello again, it's Pastor Marshall, and I just wanted to say thank you for listening to this message. If you want to hear other messages or maybe find out more about our church, you can visit redhillschurch.com. From there, you'll find links to our social media pages, message archive, and ways you can support the ministry work. Thanks again for spending time with us, and God bless.